This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Dividing his sensibilities between Epicureanism and ethics, our guest today, Taras Gresko, set out on a nine-month worldwide search for a delicious and humane plate of seafood. What he discovered shocked him. In his new book, Bottom Feeder, How to Eat Ethically in a World of Vanishing Seafood, Gresko describes out-of-control pollution, unregulated fishing practices, and climate change affecting what ends up on our plates. Gresko has written for The Times, Independent, Condonast Traveler, National Geographic Traveler, and The New York Times. He is also the author of the best-selling Sacra Blues, The Devil's Picnic, and The End of Elsewhere. Taras Gresko, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hey, how are you doing? Good. How are you today? Not too bad. Not too bad. How, how's it in Montreal? Is it nice there? Uh, it's cool. It's uh, probably in the 60s, a little overcast today, but we're having a nice uh, spring so far. Hey, oh, that's good to hear. Now, is, is Montreal a good fish town? That's an awful fish town. Oh. <laughs> I, grew up, uh, I grew up on the West Coast. I, I grew up in British Columbia, uh-huh. and uh, that was fantastic. We had the, the wild salmon runs, of course. I grew up eating smoked uh, wild salmon and all kinds of salmon. Um, out here, it's you know, in, in 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 the central U.S. and in the eastern cities, things can be a little rougher. I'm getting the the salmon that I love, for example, uh, and these days you can only get it from Alaska, the good wild stuff. It's costing forty dollars a pound. Oh my God! Jeez. Yeah. So, so what brought you into writing a book about eating ethically? Uh, had you written something from this perspective before, or is mostly what you're writing a, a traveling, uh, you know, explanations and narratives? Well, I'm a food and travel writer. Uh-huh. Uh, my last book was called The Devil's Picnic, and I was seeking out forbidden substances all around the world, everything from coca leaves in Bolivia to absinthe in Switzerland. And uh, in one of the chapters, I was looking into European Union health regulations in Spain, and I remember having a, a very uh, striking meal of baby eels, um, these things called angulas. And, uh, and after I had the meal, I realized that they were pretty close to being endangered. They weren't coming back to the rivers of, of Spain. You know, people were paying you know, up to 50 euros for a little dish full of these baby eels. So that sort of set me thinking about the ethics of the, of the food we're eating. Uh, another thing is that I've been a fish eater mostly for the last 12 or 14 years. I've tended to stay away from meat and poultry. Um, and uh, I really wanted to look into the ethics of the fishing industry and also the, the burgeoning aquaculture industry. I wanted to know where my food was coming from, where my fish was coming from, and what some of the environmental consequences of eating this way might be. Now, were you personally shocked about what you found out on this? Did you, have you completely changed your diet? Well, I still eat fish. Actually, I eat more fish than I used to, <laughs> but I was shocked by what I saw for sure. Um, some of the things were, were quite striking. I mean, there's a lot of uh, fraud that goes on in the seafood industry. There's species substitution. Um, the all-you-can-eat grouper that you're getting is often imported, um, uh, imported pangasius or bassa from Asia. Uh, you're lucky often that if you get the, the, the kind of uh, tuna that they say you're getting in 
Japanese restaurants. Um, there are things like uh, scallops actually being made from the fins of sharks or uh, skates. Um, or the wings of skates, that kind of thing. These were things that I kind of knew about beforehand. But what shocked me the most was actually what uh, what the consequences of the fish farming industry are. And in the case of salmon, for example, um, there are so many adulterants and antibiotics used in the salmon farming industry, in particular, in particular to get rid of these little things called sea lice. That that's really changed my eating habits. I've, tending to stay away from the big luxury farm species like salmon right now, and uh, particularly shrimp, farm shrimp. I also went to Asia and saw lots of the, uh, the shrimp ponds in Asia, and that really shocked me as well. Well, that's a disappointment for me on the salmon front. Is there, is there a good way to have salmon? It's a really sticky issue these, this year. As I say, I grew up eating salmon, and uh, I love the stuff. Uh, there's nothing like a good spring salmon or, or, or a good Chinook from the Copper River. Um, Alaska has reliable stocks of salmon these days, although apparently they're down a little this year. Uh, they have healthy runs. And one of the reasons they have healthy runs is that they're quite far north, so the rivers haven't been so affected by global warming, which has a big impact on the viability of salmon eggs, the, the river uh, water temperature. Um, as you probably know, in California and Oregon, the Chinook fishery has been closed this year for the first time in 160 years. Um, so basically what we're looking at is if you want to stay away from farm salmon, and I would suggest staying away from all but the organic farm salmon, uh, which is a little hard to find and it's hard to be sure how high the quality is, um, I'd go for the um, Alaska salmon. But that means you're paying a premium price um, it also has to be shipped in from quite a distance. So I'd make it more of an occasional uh, indulgence. And I think that's a big change in my eating habits. I'm uh, eating habits. I'm eating seafood, the big species like tuna and salmon, uh, a lot less frequently. And uh, the mainstay of my diet is now these little fish I've discovered as I travel the world, things like herring, mackerel, sardines, anchoveta from Peru. They're sort of the mainstay of the protein in my diet now, and the big fish are more occasional I, I want to get back to um, your the eating the the uh, the large fish the, the issue you just brought up, but I want to ask you uh, about f- uh, farms these fish farms um, and some of the conditions and sort of describe what a typical major uh, manufacturing food uh, fish farm would be like. Yeah, we have to realize that uh, you know fish, which used to be sort of the last wild-caught thing that you could reliably find in the supermarket is now largely farmed. About 45% of the fish produced in the world is now comes from some kind of aquaculture operation. It really depends on the species. Some of it's quite well done. Um, for example, trout has been farmed for a long time inland in Idaho, and uh, that's, a, that's an industry that doesn't have very much of an impact on other wild species. It's pretty well run. And trout is a great alternative to, to salmon, even smoked trout on a bagel as, as, uh, as opposed to lox, for example. Um, then there's, uh, there are some people who are really trying to raise fish ethically. They're doing enclosed containment concrete tanks inland, which prevents the transmission of parasites and disease to other species. So I've seen sturgeon, for example, being raised in tanks in a hangar. Uh, these are seven-foot-long fish. Uh, they look like something out of uh, prehistoric times. They've got these scoots on their back. Mm-hmm. They're, they're enormous. And they're being raised for, uh, for caviar, uh, which is interesting. Yeah. Now, 
At the opposite end of this uh, is the raising of shrimp. And this is the kind of shrimp you get in the all-you-can-eat uh, deals in the family uh, food restaurant. Right, your, your, hometown buf- your hometown buffet kind of shrimp. Yeah, exactly. And I really, that's one thing I stay away from because I've seen the ponds that they're raised in. Yeah. They're dirty ponds. They're filled with antibiotics, fungicides, even diesel in order to clean out the other competing species. Um, and they have a real impact on the people who live alongside them. Um, I saw uh, lower caste people in India who were forced to live alongside these shrimp ponds. The shrimp ponds have been cut out of their rice paddies. Um, they don't provide very much employment, and what they do provide is a lot of contaminated water. So the people I saw were having problems with dysentery. They had sores all over their legs because they were being forced to wade in this water in search of what wild fish were left. Yes. So uh, the, uh, our, our eating habits can have a real impact on people in other parts of the world. But also, because this stuff is becoming industrialized, it's just not as good as it, for us as it used to be. There are alternatives to shrimp. There's still wild-caught shrimp out there. Spot prawns of the West Coast. There's cold-water shrimp, which is a great alternative. But we've come to think of these things as, uh, you know, just readily available protein that's available year-round. I think we have to start looking at it the way that our grandparents did, as something that's more of an occasional treat that we're willing to pay a bit of a premium for. Yeah, it really... There's one horror story. By the way, I want to remind our listeners, speaking with... Teres Gresko, and the book is Bottom Feeder, How to Eat Ethically in a World of Vanishing Seafood. Uh, I remember a, a story came across the, my desk a, a couple of months ago that about in China, they were using, uh, they were raising uh, tea, um, I was, tapatia? No, what am I, no, wait, what's the fish? Tea? Tilapia, maybe? Tilapia, thank you. Yeah. I got, tilapia, and they, were, they found that uh, tilapia would eat uh, chicken feces. So they were, oh, yeah. they were raising chickens for slaughter over... A pond that was filled with uh, this uh, this fish, Ethiopia, and uh, and they were it was sort of this uh, little uh, uh, biosphere, if you will, <laughs> of them eating uh, chicken poop. If the, that's the way I can say it on the air, and you just have to say to yourself, what kind of bacteria? What are they doing with the antibiotics to, to prevent these? The, you know, a lot all these diseases from occurring. And so, what are you really eating here? You're eating something that's yeah. going to be bad for your well, health. Well, a lot of our seafood is imported from China now. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's they actually supply seventy percent of the world's farmed uh, seafood now. So, and that industry has arisen in the last uh, decade or so. Um, it's amazing. You know, now they provide most of the world's. Uh, farm shrimp, so it's and they're having huge problems with water pollution. Yeah. They're, they've got all these people living cheek by jowl, 1.3 billion people, and uh, and and they're basically going through their industrial revolution as we speak. And yeah. it's strange for us to be importing food from this place, which is having which is, is struggling with water issues in particular. But I've got news for you. Um, uh, you know, chicken manure, as it's called in the industry, is actually an approved ingredient in the salmon feed that we're feeding to salmon here in North America. Um, you can also put roadkill in the feed. The, the feed industry in North America, especially when it comes to fish feed, well, it's a when scandal. It comes to fish feed is unregulated completely. Oh my God. So, yeah, so. Uh, uh, so it's not just a, an import issue. This is an issue that we're all facing when we when we go to our supermarkets. Now, now, is there any? There's no regulation at all when they when they're putting roadkill and chicken poop in fish feed. It's just uh, put in there and it's business and no as one, usual. Yeah, and people don't pay attention. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the it's one of the few Jeez. feed industries that's still unregulated. 
um, unfortunately. They're, they're actually putting a lot of soy into the fish right now, into the fish feed, which means that we're basically turning our fish into the salmon, into vegetarians, uh, which means there's a lot less omega-3s in the flesh, too. So all of the health benefits from eating disappear as well. As well, And now you're getting some pretty potent toxins as well. So if you're really, so this is, they're just looking for uh, mass here. <laughs> Whatever they can feed these fish that will fatten them up quickly enough to get them to market is basically what well, we're, we're saying. If you think about it, it is pretty unusual uh, that salmon, which used to be, I mean, and my mom remembers buying it in the 1970s um, for, I mean, getting a two-pound fillet would be about $20. Now mm-hmm. you can get salmon and Safeways and other supermarkets for four ninety nine a pound. And this is another time of very expensive food. Um, so why is it so cheap? That's the question we have to ask ourselves, and it's because it's being fed very cheaply, and, it's being, and they're being raised like battery hens off the coast of uh, North and South America right now at very high densities. Are the, do these farms tend to be closed systems so that that's, is that why you get the, this uh, unusual amount of like bacteria and, and uh, you know, material, toxic material there? Or they do they do some of the farms have sort of an open so that the water flows through the through their situation um, so they're not getting the how how is what's the how are they generally raised I guess what I'm trying to say well usually uh, the salmon farms are the salmon are raised in net pens as they're called okay. off the coasts of uh, of British Columbia and Chile in particular um, Alaska has, wide, has wisely forbidden them altogether um, and and actually the fact that they're in the oceans is causing a lot of the problems so these are basically nets dangling from floating catwalks in the ocean and they can have up to say 1.5 million salmon in each of them they don't look much bigger than sort of a country club tennis court um, my god and uh, yeah so from the air they don't look like they're taking up that much space but they leave a vast sort of trail of muck which is rotting feces and feed which doesn't get snapped up by the fish uh, which has an impact on say oysters that are being raised nearby uh, clams uh, uh, and other fish they're finding a lot of fish are having uh, wild fish are being affected by these they say that there are runs of pink salmon wild runs of pink salmon these are these smaller salmon that uh, feed bears and tons of other species uh, including bigger salmon um, are being affected by sea lice. Uh, now, the sea lice are attracted by the salmon in the farms. Um, when you get that many fish in one place, it, it naturally attracts these parasites. And these parasites are passed on to the little fish, the little pink salmon that come down the rivers. And uh, the sea lice eat through their, uh, the skin and the mucus on the on the, the little salmon and kill them off. And they say that in one area, the Broughton Archipelago, all the wild salmon could be gone by the year 2011, well, in only three years. Um, so it's, it was actually better to raise these things inland, as they've been doing with trout for a while, and as they've been experimenting with, um, uh, with coho salmon. There's a guy up in British Columbia who's raising coho in these concrete containment tanks inland, and then he's using the, and which allows you a great amount of control. Uh, you can remove the feces, you can purify the water, and there's no risk of contamination for other species. He's actually using the purified waste from the fish to uh, fertilize his fields of wasabi, oh. which is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I'll say. How do I get hold of some of that? I'm sorry? How do I get hold of some of his fish? Where do I go for... Oh, you know, gosh. Well, right now, of course, I mean, it's one of those things where... 
you know it's it's sold locally you yeah. can go to you can go to vancouver uh yeah. it's always a it's a great excuse to visit a great city vancouver and uh, there's a restaurant called the c restaurant uh, huh? just the letter c and they serve a pan-sized coho uh there from the farm from the swift aquaculture farm so, so i want to make a distinction not all farm uh Farms, the fish farms, are necessarily a bad thing. There are those who are responsible and do produce a product that we we can easily feel exactly, good about. Eating yeah, and we've time. got to start paying attention to to the ones that are doing it right. Um, even the salmon fishermen I talked to, who hated the whole industrial salmon uh, farming industry because it had a real impact on their livelihood, were saying, "Listen, you know, aquaculture, fish farming is necessary. Uh, population of the world is growing." Um, and uh, we need protein, but there are ways of doing it right. Closed containment is a way of doing it, and some of the fish that you alluded to before, like tilapia, Uh carp, catfish, are interesting because they're herbivorous fish. Uh, You don't need to... One of the problems with salmon farming and shrimp farming is that you need to catch other species, little fish like sardines, uh, anchovies, uh, which are perfectly edible for humans, and grind them up, feed them to the big fish, and uh, and then we eat the big fish. Or in the case, I've actually seen cat food made from salmon. You know, so that seems like a real waste, grinding up the little fish to to make the salmon that ends up in a cat food can. Um, so by raising the fish like catfish and tilapia, um, if it's done well, mm-hmm. if you're not feeding them chicken manure, <laughs> um, th- those are actually great fish. They're they're really uh, that's a very sustainable industry. I for me, I favor domestically raised catfish, tilapia, and carp, if you can find it. We're speaking with Terrace Gresco, and the book is Bottom Feeder, How to Eat Ethically in a World of Vanishing Seafood. And it brings me to a question uh, about the what I read many year, a few years ago about the collapsing fish populations around the world and yeah. uh, how how imminent that is in uh, in terms of its actually happening to some of the... I think you described earlier the bigger fish, the fish that are at the top of the food chain, are the ones that are most in danger. Am I, am I correct in, in that assumption? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the situation is really dire. Um, you probably heard in, in 2006 uh, uh, a yeah. marine ecologist uh, interviewed in the book, uh, Boris Worm, uh, led a study where they looked at thousands of fish stocks around the world and uh, concluded that by the year 2048, uh, all of the major forms of wild-caught seafood, the stuff that humans rely on for dinner, uh, will be gone. Um, and this is a process that is, that is particularly happening with the big fish. Uh, it's already happened with cod. Uh, the cod. There was a cod collapse, which is the biggest marine food fishery in the world, um, collapsed in the early 1990s. And there's no sign of it coming back. So we can fish species to commercial extinction. Wow. We, we've done it with Atlantic salmon already. Um, and what looks like we're, the next species in line is shark. Now, interesting, I, w- I go to Shanghai in Bottom Feeder, and I, I visited a shark fin restaurant. And this is a big industry in China. People love their shark fin at banquets, at weddings, that kind of thing. And we've actually reduced shark populations to 10% of their former levels. Uh, part of this, I mean, gosh, was the film Jaws. You know, All of a sudden, sharks were portrayed as enemies and man-eaters, so there hasn't been a lot of effort made to, to save these predators. But it turns out they really control food chains in the oceans. And we're seeing a lot of unexpected consequences of the disappearance of big fish like tuna, cod, and shark uh, from the oceans. One of them is happening this summer in the Mediterranean where we're seeing these sort of uh, giant flotillas 
or smacks of jellyfish, poisonous jellyfish showing up because somewhere along the line, one of their predators was removed probably for, uh, probably to make seafood for us. So we're seeing the oceans are becoming very different places and that's because of our eating habits, which is what bottom feeder is about, uh, helping people to change their eating habits a little bit, both for our own health and the health of the oceans. And often those two things coincide. Is there is there a percentage when when a when a fish stock gets below a certain like you mentioned ten percent on on sharks? Is there a sort of a fail safe point at which uh, they're not coming back on a percentage basis? Well, there's a there's a point which we call commercial extinction, where it's no longer worthwhile for humans in boats to go out and chase them. <laughs> Unfortunately, with some species, and I'm thinking of bluefin tuna. Which is what you find in the primo um, sushi restaurants. It's the stuff called toro. Um, that that stuff is so valuable. Uh, you know, these are thousand-pound fish. I've seen them in the market in the Skiji market in Tokyo, uh, going for twenty thousand dollars a fish, Ooh. and they can go for as much as one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars per fish. So when the when the scarcity uh, when they're scarce enough and, um, and valuable enough, it's it becomes worthwhile to chase the last few of these fish uh, to the very edge because people are still paying a high price. So, so some so sort of scarcity inver- premium. But that happens with abalone and uh, uh, sturgeon as well. So this becomes an inverted logic here because there's so few left. We have to essentially fish them completely into extinction. Is it? Yeah, it doesn't. You know, it's not going. It didn't happen with the cod, for example. Uh, cod were never. You know, they're a fish and chip fish. So they were never considered, uh, wow. they could never be considered that valuable. So there are still cod left, but unfortunately, uh, their place in the food chain has been taken by other species. Uh, this is uh, not necessarily food related, but uh, the popularity of omega three fish oil in capsules is that a yeah, good I- definitely is that a good idea to be taking those? That's a question I've been looking into lately. Um, oh. From what I've heard, the the fish oil that goes into the omega-3 capsules comes from smaller species like um, sardines and anchovies. And very uh, at the current rate of consumption of those capsules, uh-huh. uh, about 1% of all the fish, we, fish oil that we use goes into the capsules. So it's still a very small amount. Actually, about three-quarters of the fish oil produced in the world goes to make farmed salmon. So um, that's, that's an eating habit that we could change quite easily. It would have a big impact on world food security. As for omega-3s, I, I take those capsules, um, and, uh, and, and I think it is a good idea for our health. It's definitely is a better way to get them is just to have two or three meals of the small fish like sardines and anchovies, herring or mackerel. How do you prepare the smaller fish? Do you have a... Uh, I get to, I I rely on things like herring and mackerel as a staple for lunch. Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna I'm about to have a lunch that's going to involve uh, uh, mackerel that's been preserved in you know canned mackerel that comes in a great wine sauce. I buy the yeah. stuff from France, and that that's great in sandwiches. Um, the smaller fish can be done in a lot of ways. I do. Uh, I've, I've got recipes on my website, okay. which is terracegresco.com. There's right. even a recipe for sardines baked into a pie, which is kind of <laughs> very good. I like that. Well, I want to. I want to. Yeah. I want to send us out on a on a on a positive note. Are we? Yeah. Is is the fact that uh, is there a recognition on the part of governments and around the world? The scientific community obviously has gotten it, but are we getting it uh, in terms of our politics? Uh, I'm optimistic that. Uh, 
positive things could happen. Uh, they're already happening off the coast of California. I think you've got 29 marine reserves out right. there. Um, Hundreds of miles. Which is, which yeah. is a great start. They yeah. actually, yeah. if you limit fishing in certain parts of the ocean, yeah. local fish populations have a chance to recover. It's been done off the coast of Hawaii. So I think departing politicians who want to leave some kind of legacy, <laughs> hint, hint, um, <laughs> Uh, could do worse things than setting up a network of national marine reserves. Mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt did it with the national parks in the 19th century, and uh, and I think that would be a, a great thing. Uh, and that should be done internationally as well. That would really help the oceans. Well, the U.S. is going to have a new administration, and, and we can only hope that uh, they'll be more responsible. Excuse our last one, yeah, please. Yeah. Please, please pardon us for the last eight years. But... Uh, well, Terrace Cresco, thank you so much. The book is Bottom Feeder, How to Eat Ethically in a World of Vanishing Seafood. Thanks for being here oh, on Weekly Signal. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signal's interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week... I'm Nathan Callahan, and I'm Mike Caspar, and this is Weekly Signals.